Um, this is a big chapter and I wanna to try to include everything. <clears throat> okay, welcome. We are on chapter 37. Um, it's a really great chapter. I know I've said this before, but like this is definitely one of my favorites. I have a few favorites, but 37 is definitely one of them. Um, so I'm excited. Okay, so how are we, What? where are we, what are we doing? So chapter in chapter 37, we're going to be wrapping up the discussion that we started in chapter 35. Does anyone remember what that was? Uh, in 35, the Benoni, right? This person who the Altarab is talking to has an existential crisis. What's his existential crisis? Is that he feels like his service of Hashem is second rate. That really the tzaddik has the ultimate service, which is perfect behavioral connection. Um, and behavioral, like, I mean, perfect, sorry, emotional, perfect emotional status, right? His emotions are completely aligned with Hashem. The Bani doesn't have that. He's never going to have that. So um, he feels like it's he's a second-class citizen. And so we're, we spent chapter 35 and chapter 36 um, discussing why that is not so why the service of the Benani is as important or the point of serving Hashem. And we did bring a whole bunch of different reasons. And we even said that a tzaddik, even if he has perfect emotional um, connection, he still has to do the mitzvahs. He still has to do the actions. So obviously actions are where it's at. Right? That's where we got to so far. Um, so this is going to be the last chapter that wraps this concept up. We're going to learn a whole bunch of new things, obviously, in this chapter. But remember, the purpose of this chapter is to kind of tie this subject up with a neat little bow so the baby can move on and not feel like his service is any less than, than the tzaddik service. Okay? So... Um, this is, like I said in the beginning, it's a really exciting chapter. So many of the things that we learn are just like really kind of put a new perspective on how we look at the world and look at ourselves and look at our service. So I'm excited to get into it. So why do acts of goodness and kindness hasten the coming of Mashiach? Okay, that's going to be one of the main points we're going to be talking about. So to backtrack for a second, we know and we're taught from little kids. I literally was listening to Uncle Maishi in the car today with Hanalea, being that she wasn't in school. Um, and because school is optional these days, right? We don't like, it's not a given that your kids go to school every day. Um, so sorry, as you can see, I'm venting. <laughs> I'm still like not okay. Um, but anyways, so I was just listening in the car to um, the Uncle Maishi song. Uh, uh, it, um, oh my gosh, now I'm forgetting. But basically the Uncle Maishi song that says, um, mitzvahs bring Mashiach, right? Mitzvahs bring Mashiach. So we know we're taught from a very young age that mitzvahs, acts of goodness and kindness bring Mashiach, right? And that that's what we're going to talk about in this chapter. But 
But did you ever wonder why we take it at face value, right? We we just say, oh yeah, okay, of course, mitzvahs bring Mashiach, but why? And what's so cool about this chapter is we're actually gonna understand why. And we're gonna understand the mechanics of what actually happens when you do a mitzvah, what happens to you, what happens to the world, right? The actual, like if you were to break it up as a science experiment, right? We're going to know. So every time we do a mitzvah, we're not going to just have to just have faith that our mitzvahs are meaning something, that our actions actually affect change. We're going to know because we're now going to learn what that actually means, okay? So um, the Tanya is going to show us what happens, and, and how the universe works. Like, that's one of my favorite things. I always digress, but that's part of the fun, right? Um, one of my favorite things about Tanya, which I was just speaking to, I do my community Tanya class on Sunday morning. And what I was talking about with them is that what I love about Tanya is that you just have to learn it. And even if you don't affect any change in your life, even if you don't do anything differently, just the way you look at the world is going to be different because you can't unknow stuff. So the Tanya teaches us so much of the inner workings of our own self, our own psyche, how we interact, why we do the things that we do, why the world works the way it does. And so automatically you're looking at the world differently, which even if you don't make a conscious choice to change your behaviors, you're going to be changing things that you do and you're going to be changing the way you look at things because you can't unknow stuff, right? And once you learn about the beauty of this world, then it already has an impact, which is my favorite thing. Anyways, okay. So chapter 37 begins with the line, I'm gonna quote in English, all of the revelations that will take place in the era of Mashiach and in the era of the resurrection of the dead, depend upon our work and our actions during the duration of exile. Okay, so Kari, pay attention because we're talking about Mashiach this chapter. Remember, you had your question last week, right? I didn't forget. Um, so this is gonna hopefully answer some of your questions. But to go back to that, um, that quote, basically what we're saying is that the, the, the degree and the quality of the revelation that we're going to experience during the times of Mashiach depend on how we act now, right? What we do now in exile, the actions that we take are going to directly affect the times of Mashiach, okay? And this is a, a very important concept because this is what it means when we say schar mitzvah mitzvah. The reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. Have you ever heard that phrase? Schar mitzvah mitzvah, right? There's even songs, right? So um, the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself, right? So what does that mean? Um, it means that mitzvahs have intrinsic value. Let's explain, okay? There are two types of rewards, okay? One type of reward is an arbitrary reward reward. And I'm going to explain in, in an example. Okay. So let's say you have a bunch of kids, right. And you have a very, very dirty playroom. Right. And so you tell your kids, if you clean your playroom, if you clean the playroom, then you'll get a lollipop. Okay. 
That's an arbitrary reward. Why? Because the reward has nothing to do with the action itself. How do we know? Because you can substitute the lollipop for a, a pencil, a sticker, an eraser, whatever. You can take, you can switch that out. The reward is has nothing to do with the action itself. You, you do this thing and I'm gonna give you a lollipop for it, right? That's one type of reward. I'm sure we've all experienced that before. And the second type of reward is let's say you're an adult, right? And your house is a mess and you spend time cleaning up your house. What's the reward? A clean house, right? The intrinsic value of having a clean house is the reward. Right? And that's enough. So the so so the reward um, is the action itself. The action itself has intrinsic value. So that's what we're saying about a mitzvah. When you do a mitzvah, the the actual action of the mitzvah has intrinsic value. So the reward for the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. Right? So that makes sense. So we understand these two types of rewards, and we understand that. The mitzvahs have intrinsic value. We don't need an arbitrary um, reward, right? We don't need a lollipop at the end of it because it already has such inherent value, okay? So all the revelations that will happen in the times of Mashiach are dependent upon the work we do, the work we've done previously. So if you think about it, right? If you were to apply the, the example, right? The coming of Mashiach is the clean playroom, okay? Exile is us cleaning the playroom or cleaning our house, cleaning the kitchen. The, every action that you do, every pot you put away, every dish you wash, all the things, you know, you sweep the floor, everything that you do um, to clean the house is the actions that we do in exile. The Mashiach is the clean house. Okay, does that make sense? Any questions so far? Okay, so um, it's not like Hashem is saying that um, you, you're, okay, do these things. And then when I feel like you did a good job, right? And the, and the playroom is clean, then I'm gonna hand you a lollipop. Then I'm gonna bring Mashiach and that's your lollipop for doing mitzvahs, right? It's the fact that the mitzvahs itself are going to bring, <laughs> going to bring Mashiach, right? It's the, the value of the action itself, okay? So do the mitzvah, Right? And create the kind of world that Hashem could be at home in. Right? And how does Hashem get a world where he feels at home? Through doing mitzvahs. Right? So do the mitzvah so we can create a home for Hashem. Right? We, we know that we want to create a home for Hashem because we know that's Hashem's innermost desire, which we're going to talk about again later in the chapter, just in case we forgot about that. How do we create a place that Hashem feels at home in? Through our mitzvahs. Mazel tov for the lost tooth. That's very exciting. Do you have a tooth malach? In our house, we have a tooth malach, a tooth angel that comes and visits. Um, okay, so how, 
So now that we've established that mitzvahs are what creates the home for Hashem, right? We, we, we know that, we believe it, we, we've been taught that. Now the question is, how do my mitzvahs actually create the world um, that Hashem wants to be in, right? How does this happen? So we have to go back to chapter seven. I don't expect you to remember what we learned in chapter seven, so I'm going to remind you. In chapter seven, we talked a lot about good and evil in the cosmic world, okay? And we talked about the concept of klipa. Does anyone recognize that word? The shell, klipa. What did we say in chapter seven? That 99% of this world falls under the category of klipas noga, the shiny klipa. What does a shiny klipa mean? The, the neutral, the neutral klipa. It, it, it's the translucent shell, right? Not the opaque shell. Klipas tmeos, the opaque shell where godliness is not accessible at all, we stay away from, right? There's very, very few things that are at like stay away, we don't touch, right? And then we have kedusha, we have holiness. Certain things are intrinsically holy. There are also very, very few things that are intrinsically holy. What's the majority of the world made up of? Klipas tmeos, this, this type of object that has a has a translucent shell which means we can see we can we can grasp the godly spark inside of it. it means the godly spark is elevatable i just made up that word but you could elevate it right so most of this world um falls under that category because most of this world is made up of neutral things right so depending on what you do with the things that are in this world, you either are elevating it to holiness or you're demoting it to um, unholiness, right? So that's what we learned in chapter seven. Um, the world is mostly mundane, right? And But it's only a facade. It's a facade that really God is in all of these things. All of these th things have potential to be spiritual, we just have to tap into it, okay? So if you take physical objects, right, and use them for a mitzvah, what are you doing? You're, you're elevating that physical object from mundane to holy, but, but it's still staying a physical object, right? That's the uniqueness of this, right? You're not elevating into another plane and all of a sudden this thing becomes untangible and untouchable. The thing that you're elevating, the physical thing, let's, let's take, for example, a mezuzah, right? A mezuzah is made out of parchment. Um, it has ink. It, you know, it's in a mezuzah case. All these things inherently, I mean, well, not inherently, but all these things are mundane things, right? That we've now elevated into a holy object. But the mezuzah is still a physical object. Right, so you're taking a physical object, elevating it from mundane to holy, while it still remains a physical object. That's the definition of a mitzvah. Okay, you're with me so far. Any questions? Okay, so, um, so what happens is that a little piece of the physical world has just been elevated to godliness. Okay, now. Um, it means that 
every time we do a mitzvah, we are elevating physical objects, physical things in this world, right? Until this world becomes mostly godly and spiritual. And what happens when that happens? Mashiach comes, right? So I'm going to take you back to another chapter. So remember in chapter 33, when we spoke about, because everything is now coming together, right? We're in chapter 37, where there's only 50, I mean, there's 54 chapters. So we're way more than halfway done, right? We have tons of knowledge under our belt. We even know that at, um, through 26 really is what really we, all we needed to get on this path. And then we had all the troubleshooting and we were keep gaining more and more information, but we know a lot, right? So now we're taking all these pieces and bringing them together. Okay. So in chapter 33, we spoke about Hashem's desires, right? And we, we, we talked about what's the difference between an outer desire and an inner desire. Is this ringing a bell? Yeah. So, um, and what, how did we define an outer desire and inner desire and outer desire? And we gave the example of the alarm clock, right? Waking up early in the morning. Is that your ultimate desire to wake up at 6am or to set the alarm clock for 6am? No, that's not an ultimate desire. That's because you want to get up in the morning to go to work is going to work your ultimate desire. No, you want to make money to support your family, support, you know, and we went down the chain until we hit our innermost desire right? Do you remember this? So Hashem's desire also, Hashem has outer will, his outer wills and then his inner will, right? His inner will we know is to have a home down here in this world, right? So all the outer wills um, lead us to that point, okay? So um, what's an example of an outer will? Basically everything in this world is an is a manifestation of Hashem's outer will, which we can use to get to God's inner will, right? So the example that chapter 33 gave was about the cows, right? Do you remember? We said, does, does God want cows in this world? Yes, he wants cows because they're here, right? But is God's whole purpose for creation for the cows? No. Why are there cows in this world? Because we have the ability to use cows for holy things, right? Torah scrolls, mezuzahs, kosher food, all those things, right? So having a cow, having a cow, <laughs> don't have a cow. <laughs> um, I gotta crack myself up. Okay. Having a cow is not God's inner desire, but it leads us to his inner desire, right? So it's not the end game, but it gets us there. So think about the whole world um, connecting to Hashem's will, right? The whole world is really a product of God's will, right? His inner will might be hidden, right? Because if you look at it, most things, when you just look at them, apparently don't necessarily scream God right? We can look at most of the world and we don't see God right away. But we do see, if you've been learning Tanya, especially, you do see the potential for God, right? So yes, Kareem. Is his outer um, desire, is Hashem's outer desire, for example, us doing mitzvahs? Is that considered an outer desire? Well, it's a very good question because I think that 
it's like outer and inner at the same time because the the mitzvahs is what what creates the dwelling place for Hashem, right? So the inner desire is the dwelling place, right? But what gets us to that dwelling place is the mitzvah. So God's inner desire for us is to do the mitzvahs, which help fulfill his inner desire. Does that make sense? Sort of. Yeah. Okay, you'll think about it if <laughs> if it's. If I want to know what his outer what his outer desires are. That's what okay, I. Okay, so his outer I'm desires is anything that you see manifested in this world, right? So, um, animals, plants, inanimate objects, animate um, table, chairs, any any literally any physical thing, even people, right? Even humans, humans. So are, anything he created. Anything he created is is a means to an end okay okay yeah makes sense okay so most things we see are not apparently godly but we know that there's a potential for godliness right we know that there's a potential for using this thing to get to hashem's inner will right um and sometimes there are things that are created that even seem at odds with God's will, right? All the klipas tmeas, all the unholy things are at odds with God's will, but they're still God's will because they are here for a purpose and God put them here for a purpose, even though it might seem like the opposite of Hashem's will, right? And we've talked about this, right? So, and also we have to remember that's a very, very small fraction. So don't, you know, we, we can't use it as an excuse. Right? Like, oh my gosh, everything is, you know, everything doesn't feel godly. It's all opposite of Hashem's will, etc. Like, there's very, very few things that are not, that the Hashem, that the godly spark is not accessible. Okay? 99% of things are godly accessible. Okay. So let's say you take something that's neutral, right? And you do a mitzvah with it. That's Hashem's innermost will. Okay, so that's one of the 613 things that Hashem specifically says that he wants. Right? I keep on remind, I keep on saying this and reminding our and I remind myself this too. Like it's not a mystery with that, with what like it's not a mystery of what Hashem wants. It's not like he says, I want to have a godly home in this world and go figure out how to do it. Like he tells us how to do it, right? Like we can't even use the excuse like we don't know what to do. Like really, really 613 things. Okay. So if you take one of, you know, one of these things and you, you did a mitzvah with a physical object in this world, right? And you that is a definition of fulfilling Hashem's will. So you took something from this world, you kept it in this world, right? That's part of it, right? You kept in this in this world and revealed Hashem's will that was previously hidden. Can you give so an another, example? Yes, another amazing way to look at this is that when we do a mitzvah, we take God's will that was hidden and we reveal it. So there's many examples. I gave you the one of the mezuzah. There's another easy example is uh, etrog, right? That we shake on Sukkot, right? An etrog is a fruit from a tree, right? It's a mundane physical thing. 
if you don't use an etrog for the lulav and etrog on sukkahs, it's 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 a mundane thing. But when we take that etrog and we buy it, right, and we spend money on it for Sukkot specifically, and then we shake it with the lulav and we say a blessing on it. What you're doing is you're taking the esrog. That's a physical mundane thing. It's still, it's staying a physical thing, right? Its form is not changing. It stays a physical thing, but it's now inherent value is now holy, right? That spark within that esrog that was previously hidden is now revealed. So literally you can take any mitzvah, you can take Shabbos candles, you can take kosher food, you can take a mezuzah, you can take tefillin, anything, any mitzvah that involves a physical object, that is what you're doing. Okay? Are we good so far? Is the Torah considered a, a physical object? Not the Torah, the, yeah, the Torah, I mean, that we study. Yeah, so the Torah is interesting. I, I'd have to do some research on that because I think the Torah, as soon as the Torah, as soon as the parchment is, the Torah is written on the parchment, it's taking the parchment and elevating it. But a Torah itself is inherently holy. Does that make sense, right? Because you take the parchment, you write the Torah on it. But before, even if you never read from that Torah, that is, the Torah is still a holy object. What we oh, did yes. is we took the parchment and elevated the parchment into a Torah. The Torah is now holy, whether you use it or not. Do you get the differentiation? Reading the Chumash every day, for example, studying it. This yeah. is this this is a physical object. Physical right? object, a physical book. It... Yes. And when you read it, you are intrinsically elevating it. Okay. And so the, the pages of it and the cover of it, like everything involved in making it isn't necessarily holy in and of itself, but then was, was elevated to. Right. It's not book. holy by itself. Right. right. If you have just a, if you just have paper and you have a, a book and you have ink, right. Like nothing about those things are holy, except that it has an intrinsic holy value. If you read it, press it, if you yeah. use it. Right. But if you choose to ignore its value and you don't use it for holiness, then it's going to stay mundane. I'm also thinking, Korea, of like a table. Like yeah. any old table can just be a table, but if you use it to have Shabbos meals, Yantif meals, bring people together, you know, say words of Torah around it, then it becomes- Say your blessings on your food, You're making right? it holy. All yeah. of a sudden that table is holy. Okay. So that, oh, this is what we're going to get to because we're going to go even deeper, okay? So not only can you transform, not only are you transforming the spiritual identity of these objects, right? Um, but remember when we said, when you do a mitzvah, you are engaging your animal soul, right? And in order for the mitzvah to be done, you have to use your animal soul because our physical energy comes from our animal soul, okay? We wouldn't be alive without our animal soul. So our energetics comes from our animal soul. So when we are physically exerting ourselves to do a mitzvah, you are engaging your animal soul. Now, if you go all the way back to chapter one or two, I don't I think it's chapter one, is your animals, what's your animal soul? 
Where is it? What's its intrinsic value? Neutral, right? Like our, our godly soul is holy. Our animal soul is neutral, right? So when we take our animal soul and we do mitzvahs with our energy, we are now elevating our animal soul to Kedusha, to holiness during the time of the mitzvah, during the duration of the mitzvah. Okay, so guys, when we do a mitzvah, we are elevating the object, right? And we are also elevating the energy that it took to do the mitzvah, which is our animal soul. Okay, like this, so a lot of things mechanically are happening when we do a mitzvah. Okay, so um. We we can't do a, a we can't do a mitzvah without the energetics of the animal soul, right? So now, I I also want to just it's important to note that your your because you could think like okay, so if my animal soul is being elevated to kedusha, then I then I then I become a tzaddik. The the thing is is that the animal soul only stays holy during the duration of the mitzvah. Right when the mitzvah stops, your animal soul goes back to neutral. That's why you want to try to do as many holy things as possible because then we stay holier for longer. Our animal soul is elevated for longer. But it's not that you do a mitzvah and your animal soul is forever holy. Right? It's during the duration of the mitzvah that your animal soul gets elevated. Okay? But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. What else happens? Where did your animal soul get the energy from? Right? How do we physically acquire energy? Food, food, right? So now you eat food, it gives you energy to do the mitzvah, which comes from your animal soul, and it allows you to elevate physical mundane things to holy. So now we have another. So, what's happening? We are elevating the object itself. We are elevating our animal soul and we are elevating everything that it took to produce that energy that allowed us to do a mitzvah. Okay. Now I, I know this sounds like to me, sometimes I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever. Right. This sounds like a little far-fetched. This sounds like, okay. But what the Tanya is saying is, no, this is really real. Right. So when you eat, right. With the intention of doing a mitzvah, or let's say, I, I even want to push it to say, even if you eat without the intention, but right after you eat your food, you're doing a mitzvah, that food that you're eating is elevated, right? The object that, the, that you're using for the mitzvah is elevated. Your animal soul is elevated. All because- I'm thinking of like a, a, a gold lining that like appears on something when it's being elevated, it like comes into your body. And it like, as you do something yeah. with it- All of a sudden you're like, glittery, right? You're like, you're yeah, sparkling. Yeah. You're sparkling. Yeah. So just, yeah, well that, if you actually view yourself as sparkly godly, like that's quite an incentive. Yeah, go ahead, Karee. Just to confirm to see if I'm right about yeah. this, if I understand this correctly, every mitzvah, all mitzvahs are physical. Okay, now that's a very good point. We're going to get to it at the end a little bit. We're specifically talking about a mitzvah that takes action. And remember what we said last time, 
because the action is so important, even the mitzvahs that don't necessarily need action, we add action to them, right? So when we're davening and we're praying and it's really only using our mouth, we want to add the action. So we shuckle and we move around, right? Because it gives that mitzvah more intrinsic value. But we are specifically talking about a mitzvah that takes physical action and is using physical objects. So we are going to, at the end of the chapter, kind of compare what that looks like, let's say, compared to Torah study. Right? Because are there are there mitzvahs that are not that are just like in your mind? I mean, Torah study could be just in your mind. Learning yeah, but Torah, that but you're not doing a mitzvah, is it? Well, Torah is learning. Torah is one of the mitzvahs. Well, yeah, yeah. But it has a little bit of its own category, and we're going to get to it. Okay. 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 So we now know that. Many things are happening when we do a mitzvah. Many things on many levels are being elevated, right? Okay, so um, the other piece of knowledge that we must understand is that we have to know that because We are, we are here in this world, right? And we're, we're here to create a dwelling place for Hashem. And because we're each individuals, we have to know that what we do cannot be done by somebody else. Okay? So we come down here to this world with our little piece of physicality that is our job to elevate. Okay? If we don't do it, it doesn't get done. So if you think that you're replaceable, and if you think that some, why me, somebody else can do it, that is intrinsically not true, okay? Because every single soul came down with its particular mission. Every single soul has its job to do, okay? And it's four corners to elevate, and it cannot be done by anyone else, okay? So whatever physical possessions you are supposed to elevate, if you don't elevate them, then they don't get elevated, which is, we're not going to get into it, but I just want to mention is one of the reasons why we have reincarnations of the soul, right? Because if your soul didn't fulfill its mission, it needs to come back down here embodied in another body, but it's still the same soul to complete its mission. So it's not that somebody else is going to get it done for you. It's that your soul has to come back because it didn't complete what it was supposed to do. Yeah. I think that this idea specifically, like for me, lands, like, even as you're talking about it, I'm like getting tears. Like there's something very like awe-inspiring about it that I think like enables me to tap into the Ahava and Yura at the same time. Like Yes. It is my job and my job only to, to like fulfill whatever it is that I'm set out to do. And like, what an amazing, unbelievable thing that Hashem trusts me and loves me to like put me on this earth to fulfill a specific mission. It's just like a, I every, know. Like it's, it's like this awesome like responsibility, but there's also this immense feeling of love, right? Because it's exactly what you're saying. It's like, when we come to terms with the fact, remember, we also touched upon a little bit last week with you know, situational depression or just feeling down or feeling like I have no purpose. What am I doing here? Anybody else can do what I'm doing. And here the time it comes to say like, actually not. 
right? Actually, your soul has a specific mission and you have your physical objects in this world that is yours to elevate, right? And so don't think you're replaceable. Don't think that somebody else can come along and do it for you. It can't be done, right? So what else happens is that each and every one of us assumes responsibility for the coming of Mashiach too, right? It can't be, well, you know, there's so many people in the world and I'm just going to sit back and everybody else can do it, right? And then I don't have to actually do anything. But what happens is, is that your piece that gets left undone, you never know if that's the piece that pushes us over the edge, that that's the tipping point, right? To get us there. Um, okay, we have a comment in here. I never thought of it that way that Hashem has trusted me to fulfill this mission. It shows the amount of confidence Hashem has in us. Exactly. Guys, we would not be here if Hashem didn't fully entrust his mission in us. Okay. So this is a really big deal. This is a really big responsibility. And this is also a really huge sign of trust. It's like if any, whoever's raising children, right, we can understand this, right? Here we are, let's say you give your kid a new responsibility, right? We're trusting you with this responsibility, which makes the child feel really special, right? Because I can do this thing. And it also kind of instills a little fear, like, oh my gosh, I wanna do this well. I wanna do this right. So this, this is such an important integral piece of our relationship with Hashem. Because each and every one of us are, you know, um, there's, I'm going to mess it up, but you know that um, nobody is, what's the word? Nobody is, another word for replaceable. Dispensable? Dispensable. Indispensable. Like, oh, you're, nobody's indispensable. Well, to God, that's not true. Nobody's dispensable to God, right? Like, you, we, we always try to, like, tell ourselves, oh, we're not, no one's indispensable to help us have some humility and somebody else can do the job. We never, you know, whatever. But in God's world, nobody's dispensable. He needs every single one of us to do our job and our mission, or he doesn't get his will. He doesn't get his needs met. And right? you can't like just be looking at someone else like, oh, that's what I'm going to do, because that's actually not your mission. Right. And part so of it, your it, mission is to like find your mission. Right. And, the, and it's important to note that obviously it's a little bit tricky because we each are entrusted with the 613 commandments. Right. So we do have a similar mission statement, but the mm -hmm. way you're going to fulfill that mitzvah in the physical world, like in your four corners of the world where you're going to perform that mitzvah, that's on you. Right. So recently I was in Mexico for a uh, yoga retreat. Right. And I was supposed to join my friend on Shabbos because the yoga retreat goes from Saturday to Saturday. Okay, so obviously for me, I have to adjust. So I flew in Sunday and then I leave Sunday, but the yoga retreat's over on Saturday. So Friday afternoon, I was going to go to a friend of mine who lives an hour away to spend Shabbos. Turns out on Wednesday, she calls me, her kid came home from camp with COVID. Um, and I have to test negative to get home, right? So I cannot risk being around COVID. I have to get, I have to get home, right? So I had to think like, okay, what am, what am I going to do? So I asked the place I was staying if I can stay an extra night. And really what came to mind in a really, really real way was that I can almost promise you that no one has ever kept Shabbos in that place of the world. And it was my job 
to light Shabbos candles, to make Kiddush, to keep Shabbos in that place so it can be elevated in that moment. Oh, you're going to make me cry. But that, uh, <laughs> but but for real, right? And so first I was like a little freaked out because I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And it's like, I'm going to be alone and whatever. Turns out I wasn't alone. There was people there and I had people to chat with if I needed. But I just kept telling myself, I'm like, this, this has to be, right? I have to keep Shabbos here. This is what my job is. This is what my mission is. And nobody's kept Shabbos here before, right? At least I told myself that. Maybe someone has, but whatever. That's what I told myself. So, which allowed me to embrace this idea in a really, really real way. And also gave me peace of mind because it didn't feel like I was just wasting my time or what's the purpose of this and everything's messed up and you know, whatever. It made me refocus and be like, okay, well, this is where I'm meant to be. This is my job and nobody else can do it for me. Right? So if we move through life, excuse me for one second. If we move through life with, um, that kind of perspective, it changes everything. Because then we go from poor me to, oh my gosh, look what I was entrusted with, right? Look what God trusted me to do. Nobody else, okay? So what are we saying? Um, basically what we're saying is everything you use in your mitzvah experiences an upgrade. Okay, so everything that just got touched by you doing a mitzvah experiences a spiritual upgrade, right? And has an amazing, an amazing ripple effect. And it's accumulative also, right? So we're accumulating this godly, every time we elevate one more piece of this world, the world is that much holier. Okay, so is this an arbitrary situation or an intrinsic value situation? Right? Is it the I'm getting a lollipop after I clean my room? Or is it the fact that my room is clean is my reward? The second one. Right. It's in the mitzvahs have intrinsic value. The fact that I'm doing the mitzvah and automatically what happens when I do a mitzvah is that the world gets elevated that's schar mitzvah mitzvah. That's the reward for the mitzvah. And the ultimate reward is when we all do our part and bring the global change and the global reward of Mashiach. Okay. So after all this, wow, we have 15 minutes and we still love, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Um, remember that we're still, everything we're doing is still under the um, category of comforting the Bainani, right? We're still comforting him that he shouldn't think his service is second then, right? Um, and he, we shouldn't, he shouldn't be disturbed that his goal of service of Hashem is focused on behavior, right? Because why are you here to begin with? Okay, this is, okay, this is another one of my favorite parts and it's gonna be a little harsh, but it's in a good way, okay? You, you have to ask yourself a question. Why are you here? Why are you here? Are you here um, 
as a self-help program, right? Or are you here to serve God? If you have to be able to answer this question, okay? And if you really think about it, I think we all will get eventually get to the same place. And I mean, also, why are we here? Why are you here in this Tanya class, right? We all, I mean, you're all here learning why. Are you here as this is like your self-help moment of the day? Or are you here to learn how to serve Hashem in the best possible way? If you answer the question, okay, this is like seriously, seriously without shame, because we all have to go through this kind of process. If you answer the question that I'm here to to self-help, right? I'm here to make myself a better person, then you're gonna run into a problem, right? You're gonna be frustrated because you're never gonna have emotional perfection. And if that's your goal, to have emotional perfection, you're gonna fail, right? And that's what we're telling the Bainani. If you're here because you wanna be like the Tzaddik and you want emotional perfection, you're gonna be disappointed, right? But if you're here because you want to serve Hashem, if you're here because you wanna do what Hashem wants, right? We wanna do what he wants from us, then, then action is where it's at. Your behavior is where it's at. So you have to, this is the part where you're gonna go home and you're gonna dream about, right? And you're gonna, it's gonna come to haunt you a little bit because you're gonna be like, what am I doing here, right? And I also think it's very powerful because it helps us like get in line, right? It helps us have purpose, right? So every time you're struggling and you have a moment and you're like, okay, why am I here? Why am I here? And if you can answer the question to bring about the ultimate will of Hashem, which is a dwelling place in this world, then you're, you're doing it, right? You're here. You have, I mean, obviously... I haven't reached behavioral perfection. I'm very, very, very far from that, but I, I have a, an attainable goal, right? Because every, I can do that. But if my goal is I want to have um, a, like a therapeutic, um, like self-motivation, self-help, I want to become a better person, right? Like then we're going to be disappointed. Now, not to say that we're not supposed to become better people, right? And we can do that through many different ways and becoming a better person helps us with our end goal. But this service of God is not, that's not what that is. And that's what I said. I don't know if you remember all the way back in chapter one, I said, Judaism is not a feel good religion, right? Because you can do things that don't necessarily feel good, but it's what we're supposed to do, right? And certain things that feel good don't necessarily align, right? So there's a lot of spiritual paths that are all about how you feel, right? Now, Tanya says, obviously, if we feel good serving God, then, and if we're happy serving God, then it's a better service. And our goal is to try to get there. But we're not always going to be there. There are going to be times in our service of Hashem that it doesn't feel good. It's hard. It, it's, it's breaking, right? It, it's not feel good, right? It's, it's really difficult. And there's certain things that are difficult for me and certain things that are going to be difficult for you, right? 
But that's why we always have to remember, this is not about sitting on top of a mountain and meditating and, and coming away feeling awesome, right? Not that we shouldn't feel awesome serving God. It's not, we're not saying you should feel terrible serving God. We're just, I'm just reminding you that it's not all about feeling good. Okay. And this is one of another, another way that we say that if you're looking for enlightenment, right. In your own personal character development, you're in the wrong place. This is not about that. Right. And then we're going to be disappointed. But if you're here in this world or in this class, right, to understand your relationship with Hashem better, so you can serve him better, then, then you win, right? So it's all about reminding ourselves and keep on coming back to why are we here? Why are we here? Okay, so, um, so it's like saying, you know how like if you're in a relationship and, um, and it can be any type of relationship with a human, you know, and you love somebody and you show them that you love them in a way that makes you feel good, right? Does that really accomplish much? No, no. you have to find out how that person feels loved and love them that way, right? So don't love them the way you want to be loved, love them the way they want to be loved. And our relationship with Hashem is similar right? Don't serve God the way that makes you feel good. Like, oh, that felt super spiritual. I felt really good about that, right? You need to love God in the way he wants to be loved, right? right? That shows him love, right? And, and hopefully vice versa. Hopefully Hashem shows us love in the way that we can accept it. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but that's for him to figure out. But, but remember that you don't show someone love when you do what you want, right? That is a pretty selfish act. So the same thing applies to Hashem. You want to show him that you love him? You want to create him a home that he feels comfortable in? Do it the way he wants it done. It's like when you're buying somebody a present and you buy them something that you liked. Right. But you have to buy them something that they that want. That they like. No, that they like. Exactly. You like. Exactly. So this is not a foreign concept at all but it's a little trickier when it comes to god because it's a little bit more elusive and it's a much harder like i don't necessarily want to show god the way i love him by covering my knees like what does he care that my knees are covered right what does he care that i'm eating kosher food what does he care if i like chavez candles or i don't like chavez candles right remember we don't ask questions on a desire this is what hashem wants and if we want to show that we love him and we're in a relationship with him this is what we do eventually and hopefully we get to a place where we feel it too right and it makes us it's reciprocal and we love it and we feel good about it but you can't i guess my point is is that you can't wait to feel good to do the mitzvah okay so um so what hashem really wants his innermost desire is this dwelling place that can only be brought about through ding 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 Behavior. Mitzvahs. Oh. Behavior. Behavior. What's behavior? Mitzvahs. Not through emotional perfection. You don't bring, you don't create a dwelling place for God when you just love him in your, God, I love you. You love him in your heart, right? I feel all the emotions, but you don't do anything about it, right? That stays in your heart. That doesn't go anywhere. He wants okay? action. Yeah. It needs action. 
So a soul comes down from the highest of heights, right? And no matter what type of soul this soul will be born, born to, right? No matter what, if he's born to a tzaddik or not a tzaddik, the, the only purpose of this soul is to do action. Because if it wasn't about action, then it would stay up in heaven. The only advantage that the soul has being down here in this world is that it actually has the ability to act. If, and so if the purpose was an action, then it can just stay up there. Did it wouldn't need to come down. And that doesn't matter whether it's a, a soul's in a body of a tzaddik or a baby. So a tzaddik, even though a tzaddik has emotional perfection, yay, kudos for him. He gets to feel all the feels, right? He still has to do the mitzvah. He doesn't get a free pass. Tzaddikim still have to do the same things that we do, which is how we know that that's where it's at. That's where the, that's where the whole purpose of creation is. So once again, Mr. Benini, don't think that you are less than or you are getting a second class path to God. It is the path. Not only is it not second class, it is the path that even the tzaddik has to go on. Okay. So I want to um, give you another, like a, a comprehensive definition of a mitzvah that I really, really love that you can go home with. And so if someone ever asks you, well, what is a mitzvah? You can say, okay. Um, a mitzvah is a means through which physically that, sorry, a means through which physical objects remain physical right? But it's upgraded from a mundane level to a holy level. Okay? So the physical object remains physical, but you're upgrading its um, level to holiness instead of mundane. Okay? What would be the quintessential mitzvah? Because I guess all mitzvahs are equal and all mitzvahs, you know, have their special things but if you wanted to get the biggest bang for your buck right after describing a mitzvah with just how we described it right what would be the quintessential mitzvah what takes the most physical exertion um of all mitzvahs and elevates most all, most like mo more things on its way than any other mitzvah helping another person Close, 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 close. Say it in one word. Tzedakah. Oh. Tzedakah. Why? Why does Tzedakah give us our biggest bang for our buck? Because so much effort goes into making that money that you give Tzedakah. So not only is that little coin that you're giving to Tzedakah elevated, but all the effort that it took to create your livelihood that allowed you to give your 10% to tzedakah is all elevated. So the effort, the time, the job, the work, every, the food, the, everything that you did to make that money that allowed you to give to tzedakah is being elevated. So you're getting a, a lot of bang for your buck. Okay, it takes a lot of effort, but imagine all those pieces are being elevated along the way. So yes, all mitzvahs do that. But if you want to know like the quintessential mitzvah of bringing this idea home, that's where you can see 
all that physical labor and work and effort and intention, just by giving 10% of that to tzedakah, all of it is elevated. Okay, so next time you go to work, right, and it takes all that effort and you're making money and then you're like, oh, do I actually have to give 10% of my money to tzedakah? Like I worked so hard for it. And you give your 10% of money to tzedakah, just know that it basically elevated all your time at work. Pretty sweet. Anyway, okay. You have to give 10% of your income uh, regardless of what your income is. I mean, okay, so that's a bigger first? question, but okay. generally um, what's required of us is to give 10% of our income to Tadaka. Now, yes, there's different things and different whatever that you would have to ask your personal rabbi about exactly how that would work for you. But generally, without exception, that's what is our obligation. 10% of our earnings go to Tadaka. Okay, so, um, okay, now I have a dilemma. We have three minutes left. This is what we're going to do. I want to stop for a quick meditation because I really feel like it's grounding and important. I'm going, there's this last section that compares Torah study to mitzvahs. I'm good. We're going to do that next week. Okay. It's just a small part, but I don't want to cram it in here because I don't think that's going to do us any favors. So just remember, we're going to understand if your if your question is, well, what about Torah study? We've learned how powerful Torah study is. We've learned that it's the greatest, you know, the best way to connect to God is through Torah study. Now, what are we like? This feels contradictory. We're going to answer that question next week. Okay. So let me make a note for myself. Okay. Yeah. Basically the Altareva anticipates the yeah, but right. You learned all of this, but yeah, but we have a question. Okay. So next week, we're going to um, just address it. It'll take us five minutes and then we'll move on to chapter 38. But now let's do a quick meditation just because I feel like it's important to just bring everything full circle. Um, okay, take a deep breath. Um, remember that intentional breathing that we started learning last week, right? So try to get to a place where you can get to that intentional breathing. And I'll remind you what that is. If it helps, you can put a hand on your chest, hand on your belly. And what you wanna do is with your inhale, you want to start by the tip of your nose, inhale through your chest, your chest expands in the inhale all the way down to your belly. And then when you exhale, your belly's gonna expand and it's gonna travel up all the way out the tip of your nose, okay? So inhale through the tip of your nose, Exhale, expand your belly out the tip of your nose. So now I'm going to be quiet and you're going to practice your intentional breathing. Just close your eyes. And I love it also because it really takes some focus. So you can focus on your breath and your mind can not ping pong all over the place. While you are focused on your intentional breathing, you can let go a little bit and just observe and feel like if you're holding any tension in your body. 
if you are, try to localize and figure out like, where am I holding my tension, right? Everybody holds tension differently. And try to visualize your any tension or stress you might be holding in your body. Just imagine it just melting away. Hopefully you're feeling a little bit looser, a little bit more relaxed, and we can bring our focus to a few thoughts that we want to take home with us. The first one is the reward for a mitzvah is to experience the greatness of the mitzvah itself, that it brought God's infinite light into the world. So the reward for the mitzvah is a mitzvah. When do we experience the ultimate reward is in the Mashiach. Mashiach's time is when we're going to feel the effects of our mitzvah that we did now in exile. Okay. So it's an intrinsic value, right? It's not arbitrary. The mitzvahs have an intrinsic value onto itself. Sit with that thought for a minute. Breathe through it. Okay, the other thought I want you to go home with is when you do a mitzvah, you elevate your body, your animal soul, the object that you're using for the mitzvah, and the food and the energy that you use to accomplish the mitzvah. Okay, so all of these things are being elevated during one act of goodness and kindness. When you think about that, how does it make you feel? One more point to add to that, which I think is probably the most important. Nobody can do your job, right? You are not replaceable. Only you can do what you were put in this world for. So don't think you're dispensable. Maybe in the physical world, in your physical job, you, they tell you that. But according to God, only you can do it. So really think about that. What does that do for you? How does that make you feel? And what are you going to do with this information in the coming week? Bring your attention back to your breath in through the tip of your nose all the way through your chest down to your belly out through your belly up your chest out the tip of your nose okay you can wiggle your hands and toes just to kind of bring sensation back to your body And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. Take your time. Okay, how do we feel? You have a question? 
Any questions or comments, please feel free. If you have to go, you're dismissed. Thank you for giving me four extra minutes. I told you there was a lot in this chapter. Um, and any anything you want to share, please do. Otherwise, see you next week. We're good? Questions, comments, troubles? Okay. Let me actually turn the recording off.